Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the Razor Revolution One uh, Radio. I've sent it to the Michael Ministries, which is one of the main arms. I've got other arms going out right now. Uh, I do eightfold. Uh, I'm posting Brother Drake from Britain. He has credit due. He died in 06. Um, he talked about spiritual warfare. I'll finish the demonology later. I need a little break from the demonology for a while. <clears throat> um, I'm not doing much music unless I'm showing you my my way of how I deal with certain entities talking in music. Um, I posted one the other evening. Um, Drake is someone like me. I occasionally use music, not a lot. Um, right now, I've got my candle lit for hope. Um, there's a lot of hope right now with the end times going on, the things happening. Uh, I run my ministry online. I have somewhere between 80 million to 314 million viewers around the world. Just in the States alone, about 120 mil right now. Some of them live in homes and churches, and they all get together, so forth and so on. Um, I contribute what I can. Uh, my ministry took a little sidetrack. I'm not doing any prophecy right now. I'm not talking about current events in my nation. Uh, news cycle's over right now. There's nothing to do. Uh, I'm just hanging and watching things in the Bible unfold. Um, the recent epidemic has come about is insect epidemics, food shortages, and so forth and so on. And you guessed it, monkeypox in the United States. Amongst other things, along with COVID, Omicron stuff, Omicron, Floricron, now we've got monkeypox. Interesting that the Bible talked about boils, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I'm using Drake tonight. I'm sponsoring his ministry. His wife still runs the ministry and his family. He passed away in 06 in Maine. Um, good man. High roller. Uh, very high powered. His preaching. He never did his preaching in front of a video. Very rarely. Most of the time being an international person like I am, he done it by radio. Um, I do mine by podcasting. A more modern version of radio. Uh, you're talking somebody that was born in 1938. Uh, he went through the 70s. Catherine Coleman, Wyatt Wesley, that. The second great big spiritual revolution. Um, everybody's talking about the Great Awakening. Bless God, it's happening. Um, your goal was postponed. Well, two years ago or whatever. It's time. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on any more things that I've seen and things I've heard. That's out of the question. But tonight, Drake talks about spiritual warfare. He talks about angels, the battles of hell, and Satan or Shaitan, and so forth and so on. He explains the opposing kingdoms. Uh, it's a four segment, and each segment is done just as you see here. 
what he did on the radio. Now, I would have had demonology, but demonology is not offered right now. They've taken it off. Uh, this is one of several that he's had that I want you to hear in his own words how he explains with the Bible and his own words using the Hebrew root that he's teaching uh, out of the Bible to teach spiritual warfare to Christians. Many of my brother, millennial brothers and sisters don't understand the Hebrew concepts. They're taught it. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the Christian teaching and I use it along with my Hebrew root studies as a rabbi or grandma. Um, I use it to teach. I still will get Zola at some point, but right now I'm focusing on this. Um, Zola's not that much different, his teachings, uh, his correspondence course, which I will be offering. Um, it's very hard to get him, and I have to wait for the copies. Um, I'm going to order my first one coming up in August, which starts my round with the school. Um, Greg happened to be a gift. Uh, uh, the father to me, and I took it up. Got something in the mail, and I have it. I've got other things coming in that I will be sending to people or giving to people that I deal with Gideon. Um, eventually, I'll be having Bibles free uh, online. I'm, it's hard to get the paperback Bibles. I've got some right here for my previous pass out that I kept. I do believe people should have Bibles in their homes, and I have several in my homes, and I use several. I use some for prophetic willing and dealing. Right now, I'm not going to bother with it. Uh, I do what they call prophecy willing, where certain verses I use to answer questions and prophetic rolling. Um, right now, I'm doing a, a campaign where the committee's helping me to get food out. Uh, how I'm doing is I run a seed pantry uh, or a seed box. I'm emptying out, keeping what I want to keep and getting rid of what I don't want. And it's not easy. Um, everybody's contributing in some form or fashion. Um, since the lockdowns, I've kind of cleaning my house a lot of time, pulling out a lot of things and doing a lot of things that's needed. Um, tonight's run, hopefully, after the rain, it does rain, I'll run this down and pick up my mom's medicine um, and be done with it for the evening. Um, but they're saying we're supposed to got rain coming. Rain coming from Huntington. I'll look at my phone and check to make sure, but right now I'm not worrying much about it, per se. Um, it is what it is, and it will be what it will be. Um, uh, right now I'm getting a little bit of notion that it might, but I don't know. Um, uh, 
uh, it is what it is with me and my dealings with things. I just don't flow. <clears throat> but it, that's how I deal with things according to the will of what goes on. So I'm going to say I love yous. I know a local rabbi, a Christmas minister. Um, the other star. It's a little hard to talk right now with my jaw. Um, pray for me. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel. Pray for a nation and any nation of people that peace will come. There's no peace right now. Peace is being removed from the earth. So I'll see you guys later. And I give you a break. And I hope you learn from it. I love you. I do. It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week sharing with you keys to successful living that God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. Our theme throughout this week will be spiritual warfare. There are many different pictures of God's people in the New Testament. In Ephesians, for instance, God's people are presented under the following pictures. A legislative assembly, a family, a temple, and as the bride of Christ. However, the final picture of God's people in Ephesians is that of an army, an army committed to fight a war that is global in its proportions, one that affects and includes every portion of this globe on which we live. In fact, even the word global doesn't do justice to the scope of this conflict. It embraces not only this globe, the earth, but it extends beyond earth into the very heavens. In fact, the adjective which correctly describes this conflict is not global, but universal. It includes the entire created universe. The scriptures which most clearly introduce this conflict and describe its nature are found in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read first in the New International Version, then I'm going to compare some other versions. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Let me pause there and point out that Paul takes it for granted that as Christians, we are involved in a war that we need the appropriate armor for this war, and that our adversary is the devil himself. Then he goes on in verse 12 to explain more fully the nature of this war. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now I'm going to read also the New American Standard Version of verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then I'm going to read also the Living Bible, which is, uh, as it states itself, not exactly a literal translation, but a paraphrase. 
For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world, and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. Whichever version you wish to follow, the fact is clear that as Christians we're engaged in a titanic conflict, something that actually staggers the mind to consider, and yet the statements are so clear. I've meditated so often and so long on that verse, Ephesians 6:12 in the original Greek, that I've come up with my own sort of paraphrase. You might call this the Prince version, and I'm going to give this to you now. For our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but I like the Living Bible there where it says not against persons with bodies, but against rulers with various areas and descending orders of authority, against the world dominators of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Let me explain why I choose some of those words. I say rulers with various areas and descending orders of authority because the picture is of a very, very highly structured and well-organized kingdom with descending orders of authority and different rulers and sub-rulers responsible for different areas of their territory. And then I use the word dominators, the world dominators of this present darkness, because I believe dominate so vividly describes the way Satan treats the human race. And then note that all the translations except the living Bible that we've followed emphasize that the headquarters of this highly organized kingdom is in the heavenlies. This is very clear. Let me bring out some points that emerge from this verse that we've been discussing. First of all, the conflict involves all Christians. It's not some special group of persons like missionaries or pastors or evangelists, but it's all of us. It's absolutely general in its application to all Christians. Many Christians haven't seen it that way. I didn't quote the King James Version of verse 12, but it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I once heard someone comment on this, that most Christians punctuate that verse wrong. They read it this way, We wrestle not, period. In other words, after that we sit in the church pew and sing hymns. But Paul says we're in a wrestling match, but it's not against flesh and blood. Then consider the import of the word wrestling match. Wrestling is the most intense of all forms of conflict between two persons. Every part of the body, every kind of skill, every kind of trick has to be used for success. It's total conflict. Then I've already pointed out, but let me say it again, Satan has a highly organized kingdom. And in that kingdom there are various areas and levels of authority. And then, I've said it already, but I pointed out once more, the headquarters of this kingdom 
are in the heavenly regions. That's staggering, but it's clear. The fact that Satan heads a highly organized kingdom astonishes some people. Yet there are many clear indications of this in the scriptures. I want to read you some words of Jesus about this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. This is an incident in the ministry of Jesus. He had brought healing to a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. He brought healing by driving out the demon, the evil spirit. This is how it goes on. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebub means literally Lord of Flies. It's the title of Satan, particularly as the ruler over demons, because the demons are compared to flies or to the whole insect domain. Now let's read the comment of Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? There's certain clear implications of that. First of all, Satan has a kingdom. Secondly, it's not divided, it's highly organized. And thirdly, it stands. It has not yet been overthrown. Then Jesus goes on, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see that Jesus there mentions another kingdom, the kingdom of God. First he speaks of Satan's kingdom, then he speaks of the kingdom of God. And he describes one particular point where the conflict between these two kingdoms is brought right out into the open. He says, when I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come. I think the implication is that this particular ministry of driving out demons brings out the forces of Satan's kingdom into the open and also demonstrates the superiority of the kingdom of God because the demons are driven out under the authority of of that kingdom. So there are two kingdoms in opposition, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. Let's also look in Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice again, there are two domains or kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light, in which our inheritance lies. But there's also the dominion of darkness. The word translated dominion there in Greek is exousia, which means authority. In other words, whether we like it or not, Satan has authority. He is the ruler of a kingdom which the Bible recognizes. So these two kingdoms are engaged in mortal warfare. And the war is coming to its climax in our days as this age comes to a close. In my introductory talk yesterday, I explained that as disciples of Jesus, we necessarily find ourselves involved in an all-out spiritual war that affects not only the entire globe on which we live, but indeed 
the entire created universe. Furthermore, this spiritual war is growing ever more intense as the present age draws to its close. The scripture which most clearly depicts the nature of this war is found in Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul makes it very clear there that as Christians were involved in a life and death struggle with a highly organized kingdom peopled by evil, rebellious spirit beings, and that the headquarters of this kingdom is in the heavenly realms. This raises a particular problem in the minds of many Christians, the phrase, the heavenly realm. The problem could be expressed in this way. I thought Satan was cast out of heaven long ago. How then can he still occupy any kind of place in the heavenly realms? Today I'm going to address myself to this problem. Let me begin by pointing out some passages that describe events long after the initial rebellion of Satan against God and his initial casting down as a result of that rebellion. And these passages indicate that at the time they were true, Satan still had access to the presence of God in heaven. We'd start in the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which says this, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Almost exactly the same incident is recorded again in Job chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So at that time, which was in the days of Job, we see that Satan still had direct access to the presence of the Lord. When God's angels came to present themselves and report to the Lord, Satan was there among them. It seems to me that the passage somewhat indicates that the other angels didn't identify Satan for who he was. And I can understand this because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that Satan is transformed as an angel of light. The passage creates in my mind the impression that the only one that identified Satan was the Lord. So he could appear in the presence of God, apparently mingling with the other angels and not be detected. The Lord said, where have you come from, Satan? In other words, what are you doing here? But the Lord didn't immediately banish Satan from his presence. He actually had some kind of a, a conversation with him. So we see in the time of Job, Satan was still having access to the presence of God in heaven. And then let's go on to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been held down. The accuser of our brothers, we know, is Satan. And notice that at this time, 
he's still been accusing God's people before God day and night. Then we go on to read, They overcame him, that Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Then there's this commentary, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. That passage indicates that at whatever point that applies, and I believe myself it's still in the future, Satan still has access to the presence of God, and he uses his access to accuse God's people in the presence of God. Clearly, all the above passages that I've quoted refer to periods long after the original rebellion of Satan. So what is the answer? My answer is this. There is more than one heaven. I believe this is clearly indicated all through Scripture. For instance, in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word for heavens is shamaim. Im is the plural ending. The first time heaven is introduced, it's introduced in the plural. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, we have this utterance of Solomon in his prayer to the Lord at, at the dedication of the temple. He says this, But who is able to build a temple for him? That's the Lord. Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Where the translation says the highest heavens, the Hebrew says literally the heaven of heavens. Clearly, either translation indicates there's more than one heaven. The word heaven of the phrase heaven of heaven to me suggests a heaven that is above heaven as high as heaven is above earth. At any rate, more than one heaven. In Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses two through four, Paul is even more specific. He says, I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. Paul says there he knew a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Before I became a preacher, I was a logician, and sometimes I can't get away from logic. Logic convinces me that if there is a third heaven, there must be a first and a second. So there are at least three heavens. And apparently the third heaven is where paradise, the place of rest of the departed righteous, is now located. It's also where God himself speaks. And then again in Ephesians 4.10, speaking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Notice that phrase, all the heavens. The word all can only be correctly used of at least three. I remember when I was teaching English to African students in Kenya, one day a student said to me, All my parents have come to see me. I said, You can't say all my parents because no one has more than two parents. And if you only have two, you can't say all. Well, that applies to the phrase, All heavens. There must be at least three. I think that's clearly indicated by the whole tenor of Scripture. So I believe that leads us to the answer to the problem how Satan's kingdom is still in the heavenly realms. I've suggested to you that the Bible indicates that there are at least three heavens. In uh, colloquial speech, we sometimes use the phrase, the seventh heaven, describing a condition of great happiness. 
I suggest that it isn't scriptural. Actually, the phrase is taken from the Quran, the sacred book of Islam, and is probably not appropriate for Christians. So if you are feeling particularly happy, let me suggest that you say you're on cloud nine, because there are plenty of clouds in heaven, and that's more in line with scripture. Jesus is coming in the clouds. Well, let's look at this revelation then that there are three heavens. I want to offer you my opinion. I do not offer this as established doctrine, but as what I believe to be a reasonable opinion, which seems to fit all the known facts of Scripture and of experience. There are three heavens. The first heaven is the visible heaven. The sun, the moon, the stars, that which we see with our eyes, the natural heaven. The third heaven we know from Second Corinthians 12 is God's dwelling place. It's where paradise is, the place of rest of the departed righteous. It's the place where this man who was caught up heard God speaking words that could not be uttered. So we're left with the second heaven. Clearly, this must be between the first and the third. So I understand there is an intermediate heaven between the heaven of God's dwelling and the visible heaven that we see here on earth. And I believe that in this intermediate heaven is where Satan's headquarters are located. I believe this explains the facts of our experience. It explains the fact that when we pray, we often find ourselves and in, in an intense wrestling match. Sometimes I think we all not realize it's hard to break through to God. Sometimes we pray a prayer that's in the will of God. We believe God hears, and yet the answer tarries. Now, there can be more than one explanation of that, but I believe one major reason for experiences of this kind in the life of sincere, committed believers is that we're involved in a warfare, and that the headquarters of Satan's kingdom is located between the visible heaven and the heaven of God's dwelling. In my previous two talks this week, I've explained that as disciples of Jesus, we find ourselves involved in an all-out spiritual war that affects not only the entire globe on which we live, but indeed the entire created universe. As representatives of God's kingdom, we are confronted by an opposing kingdom, Satan's kingdom, a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings, persons without bodies, one translation calls them, and the headquarters of this kingdom are located in the heavenly realms. Yesterday, I devoted my talk to explaining the fact that Satan's headquarters are in the heavenly realms. I pointed out that the Bible reveals that there are at least three heavens. The visible heaven which we see, another heaven called the third heaven, which is God's dwelling place, also called the heaven of heavens, and somewhere in between these two, another intermediate heaven. I suggested to you that it is this intermediate heaven where Satan's kingdom is located and from which he directs his war against God's kingdom, and in particular, against us as God's people here on earth. Today I'm going to turn to the book of Daniel for a specific example of spiritual warfare 
that casts further light on the location of Satan's kingdom. In fact, I'm going to be describing a battle of angels. We'll turn to Daniel chapter 10. In this chapter, Daniel describes how he set himself to pray and seek God for a revelation concerning the future of his people Israel. And for three weeks he devoted himself with special intensity to prayer and waiting on God. At the end of the three weeks, an angel from heaven came to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. The angel was so glorious and powerful that all the people with Daniel were scattered, and he was the only one who remained to receive the revelation. Now I'm going to read Daniel's own words describing this visitation in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all, until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. As I've already mentioned, Daniel's companions couldn't stand this glorious apparition and just disappeared. Then the angel began to speak to Daniel, and I'm not concerned with all he said, but only with one part of what he said in verses 12 and 13. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. It's important to see that the first day that Daniel started praying, his prayer was heard and the angel was dispatched with the answer. But the angel didn't arrive on earth with Daniel till three weeks or 21 days later. What kept the angel three weeks on the journey? The answer is that he was opposed by Satan's angels. Somewhere in the journey from the heaven of God to earth, he had to go through the kingdom of Satan, the territory of Satan, Satan's kingdom in the heavenlies. And there he was opposed by evil angels who tried to prevent him getting through with the message to Daniel. This is how he describes it. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. They note, that's why the angel took 21 days, because he had resistance, opposition in the heavenlies. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, or chief angels, or archangels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Notice all this took place in the heavenly realms, and we are able to identify certain angelic beings. The leader of Satan, Satan's angels is called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the chief ruler over Persia. Related to him and apparently under him were various kings or lesser angels. And then on God's side, the angel that came to help 
the original angel sent with a message to Daniel was the archangel Michael. Now in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, we read this about Michael. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. The word great prince we can interpret as archangel. This particular archangel, Michael, stands guard over the sons of Daniel's people. In other words, the children of Israel. So Michael, in some special way, is charged by God with watching over the interests and protecting Israel. And because this whole revelation centered around the future of Israel, it was very much in the interests of Israel that the messenger should get through. So when the first angel was held up, then the archangel Michael came to help him. And they battled there with the satanic angels for 21 days. The satanic angels, as I've already said, were represented by one who was known as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the supreme ruler, and under him various kings or subordinate rulers who, I would imagine, had various areas of authority. For instance, there might be one king over each major city of the Persian Empire one over each major ethnic group, perhaps one also over each of the various religious and pagan cults of the Persian Empire. But we get this picture of a highly organized, structured kingdom with various areas and descending levels of authority, and its headquarters are in the heavenly, and it's a kingdom of rebellious, fallen angels, spirit beings, persons without bodies. At the end of Daniel chapter 10, the angel again speaks about this conflict. He said to Daniel, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. In other words, the battle against this evil satanic angel that dominated the empire of Persia was not yet complete. There would be further war in the heavens. So the angel continues, I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. In other words, once victory has been gained over the evil angel that rules the empire of Persia, the next empire that will arise will be the empire of Greece, and that also will have its own specific evil angel that is the ruler or prince of Greece. And then right at the end, the angel that's speaking to Daniel says this, Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So we see again that the archangel Michael is specifically associated with protecting and watching over the interests of God's people Israel. And we see that it took the united strength of the first angel and of Michael to overcome these satanic uh, ruling angels in Satan's kingdom that were opposing the outworking of God's purposes for Israel. You might say, why particularly Persia and Greece? Let me remind you that there were four major Gentile empires that successively dominated uh, Israel, their land, and the city of Jerusalem from about the 5th century B.C. and onwards. They were Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. So Persia and Greece were significant because at that time they were the two dominant Gentile empires. We see from this that the battle centers around God's people and God's purposes. That, I believe, is still true today. Wherever God's people are and wherever God's purposes are being worked out, 
that's where the spiritual battle will be most intense. And let me offer you my personal opinion again, that at this time, in the days in which we now live, the center of the conflict is once again over Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Finally, let me point out to you the effect of Daniel's prayers. To me, this is somewhat staggering. When Daniel started to pray on earth, in a sense, it set all heaven in motion, both the angels of God and the angels of Satan. That gives us a terrific insight into what prayer can do. Also, I'm impressed by the fact that apparently God's angels needed the help of Daniel's prayers to get them through and accomplish their mission. Again, that gives us a tremendous insight into the effectiveness of prayer. I'll begin by reviewing briefly the material that we've covered in my two previous talks. First of all, as representatives of God's kingdom here on earth, we are committed to an all-out spiritual war with an opposing kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. Secondly, Satan's kingdom is highly organized. Its highest level is made up of evil spirit beings, persons without bodies, and its headquarters are located in the heavenly realms. Yesterday we looked at a historical example of how all this works in practice in Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel set out to pray concerning the future of God's people Israel, his prayers set all heaven in motion. God dispatched an angel to bring Daniel the answer to his prayer. But in his passage from God's presence to Daniel on earth, this angel was opposed by satanic angels somewhere in the heavenly realms. Only after 21 days of this spiritual conflict did this angel eventually break through to Daniel with his message. The main satanic angel that opposed God's angel was called the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia. Without going into all the details that this passage reveals, we can say briefly that there is a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings in the heavenly realms that systematically opposes God's purposes and God's people on earth. Viewed in this light, prayer is much more than presenting a list of petitions to God. It is becoming involved in a tremendous spiritual conflict that spans earth and heaven and embroils both men and angels. Today we're going to look at two related aspects of this spiritual warfare, the weapons which we must use and the battleground on which the war is fought. Both are revealed in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I'll read the New American Standard Version first. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Notice Paul says, we're living in the flesh, and we're engaged in a war, but our war is not in the fleshly realm. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In other words, the weapons that we use must correspond to the nature of the war. If the nature of the war were fleshly or physical, then we could use fleshly or physical weapons. Tanks, bombs, bullets, whatever. But because the war is spiritual and in a spiritual realm, therefore the weapons also must be spiritual. So the version goes on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice our weapons are appropriate to the war. And we are dealing with fortresses. The King James Version reads like this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly or physical, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, where the New American Standard says fortresses, the King James says strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. First, let me sum up about the weapons. The weapons are suited to the area of warfare. The warfare is in the spiritual realm, therefore the weapons are spiritual. Now, I'm not going to go into further detail about the weapons now, because that will be my main theme in the two following weeks that I'll be talking to you on this theme of spiritual warfare. So just note that the weapons are spiritual and appropriate to the realm of the warfare, and we'll put that in our pending file until we can do it, deal with it in greater detail in the following two weeks. Now, let's look at the battleground. And this is tremendously important, that we understand where the battle is taking place. Speaking of the battleground and our objectives, Paul uses various words, and I'm choosing from various different translations now. But these are the words. Imaginations reasonings, speculations, arguments, knowledge, and thought. One thing is obvious. Every one of those words refers to the same particular realm, the realm of the mind. And this is something we absolutely have to understand. The battleground is in the realm of the mind. Satan is waging an all-out war to captivate the minds of the human race. He's building strongholds and fortresses in their minds. And it's our responsibility as God's representatives to use our spiritual weapons to break down these strongholds and fortresses, to liberate the minds of men and women, and then to bring them in turn into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What a staggering assignment that is. Let's ask ourselves briefly, what kind of strongholds does the Bible indicate? I would suggest to you two fairly common English words that pretty well describe the type of stronghold in people's minds. The words are prejudices and preconceptions. I believe that's exactly what Satan builds in people's minds. You've heard perhaps the definition of prejudice. It's being down on what you're not up on. In other words, if you don't know anything about it, it's sure to be wrong. If you weren't the first to think of it, then it's dangerous. If ever that was true of any group of people, it's true of religious people. Almost anything that religious people haven't heard about before, they view with intense fear and suspicion. There's another example of prejudice, which is contained in the famous statement, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. That's prejudice, you see. When a person's mind is already made up in advance, no amount of facts or truth or evidence or reason can change them. Only spiritual weapons can break down those strongholds. 
You see, people are driven and dominated by prejudices and preconceptions, often to their own destruction. I think of a, an example that really impressed me, maybe because I'm English by background. But in the American Revolutionary War, when the English soldiers were fighting the, the American rebels, their idea of war, the English idea of war, was to put on full uniform and march in rank in very highly colored uniforms with the drums rolling into battle. And uh, the American sharpshooters just hid in the trees and in the swamps and simply shot these people down without ever being seen. By our standards today, that would be considered military suicide. But in that time, people couldn't conceive of fighting in any other way. What was that? It was a stronghold of prejudice and preconception that caused the unnecessary death of thousands of English soldiers. That's just an example of how a mental prejudice can drive people to their own destruction. Let's think of some examples of prejudices that grip people's minds. I would say religious cults, political ideologies, and racial prejudices. And they are found frequently amongst professing Christians. Some little while back, I was in South Africa preaching. I was asked to preach on this theme of principalities and wars, spiritual warfare. And as I was meditating on it, it seemed to me that the Lord gave me the identity of the strong man over South Africa, a rather unusual word, bigotry. I looked up the word bigot in a dictionary, and this was the definition. One who holds, irrespective of reason, and attaches disproportionate weight to some creed or view. That's a bigot. That's a stronghold. That's what Satan builds in people's minds. After I'd given this talk, a minister who was born in South Africa and knew the country well said to me, you couldn't have described the problems of South Africa any better. South Africa is riddled with bigotry, religious, racial, denominational. The root problem of that nation is bigotry. And yet, individually, they're a most delightful group of people. But their minds have been captivated and held by this stronghold of bigotry. Now, I'm not suggesting that the South Africans are different from other people. They just have their own particular kind of stronghold. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as we close this message. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a stronghold, something that blinds men's minds so that the light of the gospel cannot shine in. And you know that usually when a person is in that condition, it's worse than useless to argue with them. The more you argue, the more they restate their error, and the more firmly they are stuck in that error. The only way to deliver such people is to use our spiritual weapons and break down the strongholds in their minds. 